Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. Today, we're talking about something we use every day, plastic. Plastic is everywhere, in our world and even in our bloodstreams. Seattle Times environment and climate editor Ben Woodard moderated a conversation with panelists, Washington State 36th District Representative Liz Berry, anthropologist Dr. Yoshitaka Oda, and Zero Waste Washington Executive Director Heather Trim in May at the Crosscut Ideas Festival in Seattle. Washington State was once revered for its recycling efforts in the nation. At its peak in 2011, Washingtonians recycled 56% of recyclable materials. But since then, there's been a decline. Now the state recycles about 49%. In this conversation, you'll learn why those numbers have dropped. The panelists say recycling is an equity issue with international and social implications. But there are solutions. A current legislative bill in Washington state aims to hold producers of goods accountable by having them pay for recycling services. The less plastic they put in packaging, the less they pay. You may be surprised by the myriad of current roadblocks to progressive solutions and the grip that keeps plastic reliance the way it is in the U.S. and around the globe. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to the Crosscut Ideas Festival. My name is Ben Woodard. I'm an editor at the Seattle Times. I edit our environment coverage, work with reporters on assigning stories and decide what our priorities are. Um, full disclosure, I'm very jealous of our folks in radio who this might come a lot more naturally to, me being a print journalist, but I'm really happy to be here and to be talking to our um, great panelists. Um, it's a great day to talk about plastic. It's everywhere. It's in my kids' toys uh, in a rainbow of colors, as I've learned, two kids under three, so it's all over the house. Uh, it's in our cups, our cars, iPhones, computers, packed into our Amazon boxes. Uh, Amazon, thank you for hosting us, but <laughs> it's getting a little much. Um, it's truly pervasive and even in our bloodstreams. So today we're here to discuss the future of plastic in our world, um, already grappling with the effects of climate change. And I'm very excited to welcome our panelists here today. So to kick off our discussion, I'd like to talk about where things stand in Washington State in regards to plastics and recycling. Um, you know, most folks in Seattle, I think we recycle, we place the things in the bins, right? It might be a little confusing of what all those numbers and symbols mean, but we tend to try to do our best. That's not the case across the state. Uh, recycling rates are, they're actually down in, in recent years, which was something as I was researching, this was surprising to me. In 2011, 56% of recyclable material was recycled, but more recently that rate has dropped to 49% and it's getting even more expensive to pay for recycling services. Heather, it seems like people have a heightened awareness of the environment with climate change top of mind. So why are we so bad at recycling? 
Great question. So um, in Washington, um, we were one of the best in the country. We did have, we were kind of um, revered as being one of the states that had one of the best recycling systems. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, the decline from the peak in 2011 from 56% down to less than 50% for our consumer um, recycling um, is due to uh, the combination of things. So one is that the manufacturers keep changing the type of packaging you get. We used to have baby food in glass, and now it's in these plastic pouches, which cannot be recycled in our system. We had coffee in metal tins and then other things, and now it's in these Again, laminated pouches that cannot be recycled in our current system. So you have that factor. You also have a big factor which people may not have been so aware of, which is for two decades, we were sending all of our waste to China. And it was uh, cheap. Um, it was cheaper to send a bale of um, mixed paper, mix of plastics, that kind of thing, to China by ship than by truck to Portland, Oregon. That was what the dynamic was. These were empty trucks, um, empty containers um, going back to China. So we had that dynamic. And then we just have the dynamic that um, the recycling system here in Washington hasn't really upgraded. And in fact, that's true for much of the world. We haven't really upgraded um, until now with new robots and new um, machinery and that kind of thing. So that's starting to happen now, but we did have a lag. And part of that was because we could send our waste um, to Southeast Asia. So these global forces are at work. What happened, you know, I think China was the principal export market for our trash. Like, what happened to make those things uh, shift? Well, and to be clear, it wasn't our trash. Our trash does go to the landfills here. It would not be cost effective to send our trash there. But unfortunately, what was going in those bales to China was between 14 and 20% contamination. So let's say you had a bale of plastic water bottles. In there would be metal, other plastics, food waste, and glass. And so when it would get to um, China or other countries in Southeast Asia, they would be sold to a lot of little mom and pop shops as well as some big companies. And they would, in their backyard, take out the stuff they could sell. And then they had 20%, up to 20% that they were burning or dumping. So we were causing a massive pollution problem, and still are to some degree. But anyway, a massive pollution problem. And the Chinese government basically said, mm, no more. We no longer, we, they, they enacted in 2018, um, they called it um, blue, they, well it's now called Blue Sky, China Blue Sky. And um, they said, we're gonna, we're gonna make it so that the bales coming in have to have 0.5%, that's not a typo, not 5%, 0.5% contamination. So that put a kibosh on our bales going to China. And now we have this reckoning that we need to basically clean up our recycling and do it here and do it a lot better. How, how are we doing? Are we getting closer to that 0.5 contamination? It seems like that would be a pretty high bar. Well, there is a facility in um, San Francisco that got to 1%. So they did improve their, um, they got put in robots. They spent, I think, $7 million. They put in robots. They put in more staff, and, and they, they reconfigured. Um, that's the Recology facility in San Francisco. But really, as you all know, if you're putting your stuff in your bin, are you sure where it's going and what's really happening? A lot of the plastics are still very problematic, and that's the reason that we were looking to try to um, work with Liz Berry and Senator um, Rolfus to do a bill to really revamp our recycling system in Washington. That's great. We're going to come back to the bill in and, and Washington and sort of the US um, you know, uh, regulatory discussion soon. I wanted to bring Yoshi in because I wanted to broaden our discussion out a little bit as we're talking about this being a global problem. And it's, it's similar to climate change in a lot of ways. I hadn't done a, a, you know, a lot of work like at the Times 
with reporters on plastic issues, but now uh, we, we do a lot on climate change. But it's a very similar issue in that things are happening uh, locally, but it, the effect is global, and so solutions have to be really big. Could you tell us a little bit about your research and the people um, that, that you've worked with and, uh, and, and met in these communities that are like on the front lines of this pollution? Thank you, Ben. Um, I work with Heather and a couple other people, but um, the reason why I'm invited here, uh, last year in November, we produced this report um, which considers plastic issues as an equity issue rather than technology issue, rather than consumer behavior issues, rather than corporate responsibility issues. So what do I mean by equity issues? Like anything else, those pollutions, and it's not marine litter, it's a marine pollution. We shouldn't really talk about the litter. It's not waste management, it's a pollution. It is pollution because it will go somewhere else and then it will actually affect somebody else's life. So I produced this report working with different people in the different places. I worked with Ghana, Malaysia, Japan, Washington State, and a couple of New Zealand, and many places, and the fact is, you know, you throw the plastic and go, we used to go to China. And then China shut down, where does it go? Does it come back to us? No, it goes somewhere else. It goes to Southeast Asia, or it goes to Africa. And then they have to clean up. Do they have a capacity to clean up? Absolutely not. So it's very similar to climate change. In some ways, those who actually started this issues are not really sort of getting this burden but those who actually didn't really start or doesn't really have so much of uh, uh, responsibility in this issue like climate change are really the first one who's going to be affected. And this justice issues is really what we need to think about it. We shouldn't really just talk about the symptom, which is basically where the rubbish goes, you know, how much we need to reduce. But we should really also consider about like, turn off the tap. Where did it come from? Let's close it, let's reduce it. So that's what I think. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have this perspective um, represented so clearly on the panel. And um, what, like, you know, we see plastic in our lives. Um, in other places in the world, it, it actually is interfering with people's livelihoods. Um, what are some of the places that you've interacted with where you've seen, seen that on the ground affecting fisheries or people, you know, being the, the uh, plastic being just a part of an economy? Like, how does that in, impact I mean, people's families? Clearly, the, we tend to think ocean is a place where people don't really live, but they, we live on the ocean. You know, there are fishermen, there's people living in the coast. And the people who loves clean beach, you know, there's tons of pe people in Washington State who clean up the beach every week, and they're just so disheartened. And then I do believe, you know, people tend to think, okay, how much is the number produced, and how much is the recycle, how much, you know, let's sort it out with numbers. But there is a conversation needed to happen, which is respect people's feelings and dignity. You know, you're just picking up the rubbish every week, and it just comes, and they know it's going to stay. It's going to stay for new generations, it will stay in the ice, it will stay in the ocean, it will come back to you. And then that's really the issues. You know, fishermen in, 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 in Ghana, tourist operator in Japan, out island, every single one of them, it just really feels so bad. 
about seeing plastic every single day, whatever they do. So that's what really hurts people. It's not really about the money only, but I think it's dignity, which is more expensive than something we can pay for. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to solutions. I think I think actually we'll get there now. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's such an inch, I, mean, I think Rep Barry, um, most people will agree that there's too much plastic. Like it's everywhere, it's causing so many issues around the world. Um, Washington, the state legislature, has taken some steps to, uh, over the past couple of years, introduce legislation that would change the, the burden of cleaning up plastic and recycling plastic um, and, and put that on the manufacturer. And this is the WRAP Act, which we talked about, the Washing, Recycling, and, and Packaging Act. Very clever. Catchy, right? Yeah, very nice, mm -hmm. very nice. Um, could you tell us about this idea um, of of that shift in sort of responsibility? Yeah, so we introduced a bill this year called the RAP Act that is called a producer-led model for recycling services. So it's called Extended Producer Responsibility, EPR. You might hear that, that term a lot. Um, four states in our country have already passed that, and you see EPR programs in all of Canada, in most of Europe, and this is clearly the model we're going towards, which is making sure that producers pay for recycling services, and with that cost, the less um, pla um, packaging waste they produce, the less they pay into the system. So it incentivizes them to not have as, to, to have that toy with, without the plastic rack, but maybe inside the cardboard box, it's way more recyclable. So we had introduced a bill over this last session to bring, we've been doing it now for several years, and um, it, it's been a very powerful lobby against the bill that has made it very challenging to, to do this. And this year, um, we got the closest we've ever gotten, um, which is uh, all the way to the House floor. But um, there are three reasons why it's been so challenging to get this bill passed. I think the first reason is that regular people like us don't realize that our recycling has actually declined in the last decade. You, as good citizens, put your goods in the recycling bin and you expect them to be recycled. Well, 50% of those materials are being landfilled. That's shocking when people hear that. And so legislators, I believe, were not um, aware that this was happening and that their constituents recycling materials were not going where they were supposed to go. Under the bill, we asked producers to also subsidize the cost of curbside recycling for everywhere that you pick up garbage in Washington State. Well, that's free recycling for all of our constituents. And I think that was another point that legislators didn't really know was in the bill. And once they learned, we're more interested in that. The second way we've come into um, a lot of challenge getting this bill passed is a very powerful business lobby that likes the way things operate now and doesn't want to pay more to clean up the system. But I believe that that attitude is shifting, certainly with the companies that act in a more, more multinational arena, because they have seen this kind of program work in other countries and in the other states where we have EPR programs, but they also know that their consumers, people like us, want them to do better. And so because that will affect their bottom line, ultimately, they want to be a part of the conversation and not have us do something to them. <laughs> they want to be at the table while we're writing the legislation. And then the third factor that's been very challenging for this bill is the Waste Hauling Association. So the folks that collect our recycling garbage at the curb, um, they don't like the way that we have set up an EPR program because 
They like the idea of the producers funding the system. They don't like the idea of the producers having any part of control and how that system's run. They see that as a lack of control that's being taken from them. And um, many of them own landfills. Many of these um, waste hauler associations and waste hauler companies own the landfills themselves. So 50% of the recyclable materials are going to their landfills. That's a pretty good deal for them. So this has been an incredible barrier that we face trying to get this kind of legislation passed now. I think this is like the fourth year you've tried to do it. Um, but I think every year we get closer and closer with more education and socializing the concept. And as you can tell right here, it's a really complicated bill. It's a complicated system to explain to people. And so once we can break it down, I think more and more legislators are getting on board that this is something that we need to get behind. Yeah, talking about complicated issues, um, in 2021, the legislature did pass the Climate Commitment Act, which was, for those who don't know, um, essentially set up a, I'll call it a carbon pricing program, just because it's kind of a clear way to talk about it. It's also um, referred to as cap and invest, but this is related to greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Just this year, um, this program came online. There was an auction, the first quarterly auction was held, and it raised $300 million from um, polluters themselves. So these are companies and institutions that uh, are required to participate in this program and there's varying levels of allowances that are given out. But essentially, if you're polluting in Washington State, you're paying into a state fund, you know, and that money can then be spent by the legislature to um, help further offset greenhouse gases. And just thinking about the complexity of that, uh, I'll tell you, being the editor on a story that we wrote about this specific program, it took us a long time to like figure out and wrap our heads around and meet with these polluters themselves, including the University of Washington is one of these institutions paying into this program, um, to understand like the complexity of the issues, how ingrained they are into our systems, and how it just takes so much to unravel some of that, you know, systemic. Um, uh, you know, problems. So is, do you see something similar here where it may take some time? I know California, Maine, Oregon have, have had some success in passing legislation like this. Do you see that coming? Yes, yeah, so I think it's, um, again, it's, it's educating folks that we have a problem because people think that they're doing right by the system. We're doing what we've been told to do, right? We put the things in the bin. I also utilize in my household a service called Ridwell that picks up um, the plastic film and the light bulbs and the batteries, but that's the privilege I have to pay for that system, right? To come to my door and do that every month. And so people don't realize that we are living in a, a huge trash problem, a plastics problem, a single-use plastics problem that isn't gonna get better if we don't do something radical to change it. And so what's exciting about the EPR model is that more and more business is coming on board because they understand that they wanna be part of the solution, not the problem, and if they don't come to the table, we're gonna do something to them that they probably like even worse <laughs> than what EPR will do. Um, the other element of the bill that I was really proud of was a bottle deposit system, bringing that here to Washington. So um, states with bottle deposit systems, and there are about a dozen of them, I think 10 of them, they have between a 65 and 85% um, recycling rate for their single-use plastic bottles. States like Washington have a 28%. 
Um, we know that if we um, want to do better by these, by these recyclable materials and get them into the circular economy, that a bottle deposit incentivizes behavior of people like us to redeem our bottles for that 10 cents. Um, and that was also a very difficult um, concept. You know, Washington, it's been on the ballot several times. It's been, you know, legislators have been talking about for 50 years. But it's just one of those things that people are nervous about pulling the trigger on because it's change. And people are worried about, I think, upsetting their constituencies and their their the communities that they represent, that this is more of a burden for them. But I think that if we want to save our planet for our kids and our grandkids, we should be concerned about taking on more burden to make sure that these materials are ending up where they should. And Heather, you work with uh, a lot of folks in different communities in Washington. How has that, um, like, is, has there been a shift in the discourse over, over recycling and plastics that you've seen in the past few years, would you say? Absolutely. So um, I worked on the Seattle bag campaign back in 2009. And then prior to that, um, helping ban styrofoam in Seattle. The, we, we had a group called Foam Free Seattle. When we were working at that point, people looked us straight in the face and said, why are you working on such a trivial issue? Plastics was just considered not an issue back then. And we didn't know that we had this, or most people didn't know that we had this huge um, gyre in the, in the North Pacific that had little bits of plastic floating through it. And we didn't know about, and I think it was already happening in Southeast Asia, people in America were really unaware of the impacts we were having in other countries. So in the last 10 years, there's been a massive amount of public awareness. And when we go around and talk about plastics and, and excess packaging, there is an overwhelming response from the public. They are fed up from what we can tell. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. So you mentioned the, the Pacific garbage patch, which uh, I think sort of came into vogue maybe a few years ago, but is a consistent problem. Yoshi, why can't we just clean it up? Can't we just, can't we just get out there and scoop it all up? What's going on here? So we can. Um, plastic is kind of like an easy one. And I'm just going to bring a little bit optimistic with, you know, bringing some negative things about it. I mean, you know, plastic, we can clean up. I've seen beaches clean up completely, you know, with like 50 people, volunteers for like a, a, a two weeks. And so it's possible. The problem is we talked about ocean, right? So it's from the surface all the way down to the bottom. So all the plastic, micro, nano, just goes all the way down to the bottom and it will just bring up by the fish and some other things and it will come back to us. So it's just really hard to completely clean up, but we can make some effort to it. So, but just Jaya thing, that's a myth. It's unfortunately everywhere. And we do know about this because we've seen plastic everywhere when we go to the ocean. And one thing I want to say, it's we have a mercury we have a PFAS, there are lots of pollution going on in the ocean, which is much more severe because we can't see them. Plastic, just about we can still see it. So let's really act on it. It's really hard, but it's something solvable. 
I can, think. Can I add to this? Um, people say, why can't you just scoop it out? Why can't you just sieve it out? And um, the main reason is because if you do that, you're also sieving out all the wildlife the plankton, the larva. So you do not want to go in and just take all the biology, There's the a, good things out of the ocean. Yeah, there, I've, I've read about this. There's like almost an ecosystem among the the plastic and other garbage. Well, that's true too. But there's also a lot of, of the good things in the ocean that you don't want to clean up. What we have to do with a problem like this is turn off the tap. Yes. That's the issue. You can't just go in and clean it up. It's turning it off the tap. And that's what the RAP Act and all these other plastics legislation would do. Thank you. <laughs> Great. So, yeah, I guess, you know, like I'm thinking back to like growing up. It's like, oh, recycle, right? Just recycle your plastic and your bottles, put it in the bin. I think in growing up in Snohomish County, just north of King County here, you know, we might have had three different bins where we'd sort the paper and the bottles and the plastic. Um, this idea of this personal burden, right? I think there's a shift in the thinking around this. But what I, I think that everyone maybe here in the audience would want to know like what they could do to affect change. Uh, Rep. Barry, maybe you could talk to us about like, what should the individual be doing to help make a cleaner world? Well, I'm gonna plug my bill here. Um, you should, yes. Um, I'll tell you this, there wasn't one legislator in the state of Washington who got a negative piece of mail from a constituent about supporting the RAP Act. It was from the lobbyists at the doors to the House chamber telling them this was a horrible idea. So I would encourage all of you, if you don't already know who your legislators are, and maybe I'm one of yours out there, if you're in Queen Anne, Magnolia Ballard, yay, um, write them and say, look, I just heard about this bill called the RAP Act. I heard it had a fiery death last year. Well, I want you to vote for it, and this is why and get them excited about this bill and tell them that not only will it um, help our recycling rates, but it'll again turn off the tap, <laughs> which is what we wanna do because it will incentivize producers and manufacturers to produce less of the waste that you all get and don't know what to do with. So that's what I would say is get involved at a, at a policy level with trying to make change because it is really a travesty to me that there are only four states in our country that have implemented a policy like this. And I would say the one that we wrote is the strongest in the country and was being looked at as a model for other states um, because of how all-encompassing and it, it really was. So that would be one thing I would do. And join a local group that picks up trash in your community. I, if you have young kids or young grandkids out there, my family loves doing that, and they learn a lot about how to protect and be good stewards of our environment as well. So what about you? I'm sure you all have good ideas, too. Well, the number one thing that I say to people when they say, what can I do to be a good person in terms of the topic of zero waste, is don't buy it in the first place. If you don't need a plastic water bottle, you know, use, bring your own bottle, use a glass. Um, don't get, if you don't, if you're only gonna use something once, borrow it from someone. If you have something that's old, repair it. And when it comes to um, single-use packaging, which is a large part of the plastic problem that we're talking about, bring your own container, ask your restaurant to give it to you in a compostable um, container you can put in your compost bin if you're in Seattle, and hopefully soon statewide. And, um, or bring your own container or have them give you a, a reusable container. So there are a lot of good solutions out there just to reduce the waste in the first place. And then of course, we definitely want and need support for the legislative bills. The legislature, legislature did pass something related to 
plastic use this session. Oh, yeah. right? Is that Charlottesville? Yeah. Regarding uh, ho in hotels, yes. single use plastic. We love that be, bill. Go ahead, Heather. I'll, I'll talk details. about that and then I'll talk about or what Liz Barry talked yeah. about her bill from two years ago. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the uh, pol plastic pollution reduction bill, which was HB 1085, was, read, was led by Charlotte Mena, who was a brand new legislator, very great legislator. Um, it does three things. It requires refill stations. So when you have a water faucet in new construction in the state building code. So wherever the water faucets are required, a refill station is required so you can refill your bottle. It requires, it bans the little toiletries, the mini toiletries, the shampoos and conditioners and things like that at our hotels. And it requires um, that those styrofoam docks that are um, getting all those little bits of styrofoam all over the state um, waters are that the they can't we can't have those flimsy ones and that a study of the hard shell ones that's a little bit of a complicated issue but then um, 5022 which was passed a couple of years ago which Liz worked on does more styrofoam and other things mm -hmm. banned styrofoam and also um, we oppose consumer recycled content so part of what makes a bill like the RAP Act successful is making sure that there's an end market a circular market for those products once they're recycled and so when we mandate certain products have post consumer recycled content, content in them, it builds that circular economy. And so the bill, the RAP Act also expands upon the products that must require that in addition to um, truth and labeling. So that item you have actually if it has the arrows, it actually is recyclable. It puts together also a statewide list. So if you go to Spokane, it's the same list as here in Seattle, which we also think is a, is a huge deal to helping clean up the systems. And that reminded me of something I learned researching for this is that most of Washington, most of the counties do not have recycling services. Right. Oh, curbside, certainly. I mean, in Olympia, yeah. you can't recycle glass. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of amazing. Yoshi, can we get philosophical, maybe? <laughs> okay. I'm not so, <laughs> we, but yeah, We've been I, talking I, about, you know, how we can change I, our personal behavior, but is there something about the way we think about plastic that we ought to change? Um, it's not really something individual behavioral change can do and people tend to use that narrative just just to put the pressure on you know people who are not really responsible I said similar sort of things but you know whenever I think about plastic what I'm really sort of what I imagine is this sort of like a one kid who's uh, uh, he's a Bajau uh, group who's a sea nomad in Malaysia in Southeast Asia they move around and just like a nomad and he just clean up Ocean, you know, who's right next to the eco uh, tourism village, and and they sell those rubbish to the recycle shop and and make some money. I just always think about what can I do for the kid, you know, and then that's all what I think. And there is a negotiation in United Nations coming up in about a couple of weeks, so I'm going to send a couple of people, and then we're going to talk about it. But this is what it is. I mean, we tend not to care if it's somebody else's, you know relatives or something and anybody we care if it's just happening right here we just got to change their mindset because our plastic goes everywhere and it will come back are we seeing internationally some momentum building for treaties like like the yes. paris yes. Know, accords like is there something similar for plastic yeah i mean people just developing countries really fighting for it because they don't want to buy another west management factory in their own tiny island you know being sold by somebody like you know, Japan or United States, if I may say. You know, it shouldn't be that kind of scheme anymore. We just really have to work together and extend it, producers' responsibility. That's absolutely first step. 
Absolutely. So EPR, and if people can talk about it, and you guys are already doing the great things by being here, so thank you so much. But you know, can I give it back to you? I just get too excited. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, should we take some audience questions? Yes. Okay, so go to, I think it's slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com, and you can type your question, hit send, and it magically appears here somehow. I don't know who's doing this, but it's, it's coming into a Google Doc for me. Um, and these are great questions. I knew there would be some really interesting questions from the audience. Is there a real chance that we'll be able to use bacteria or fungi to break up plastics at a large scale rather than only attempting to recycle them? Is there some magic bullet here that can save us like a fungi? Okay, so there are some promising technologies. So that's, there's using enzyme and bacteria, but these are at the lab scale with a small amount of material. The amount of material we have coming in is massive. And to do this, if you went to a recycling facility and watched them, it's massive amount of stuff. And you can't let it sit for 10 days and wait for it to um, you know, be degraded. This has to happen quickly. So yes, there may be in 10 years some new technology, but right now, absolutely not. 10 years? <laughs> 15, 15 years. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, I don't, there could be innovation that comes, so we don't want to deny that. But right now, it is absolutely not feasible. And it's absolutely cheaper to burn it. Mm -hmm. So they will burn it, you know, and it will landfill. Absolutely cheaper. So we'll do it. We'll love to have a bacteria, but, you know, it would cost too much. If there is a gap in the regulations, which shouldn't have here, but, uh, you know, that, that, that they would do it. And, and we can't blame them. You know, so it's... Yeah, those economic forces are so powerful, which is where regulation yeah. comes in. Great. Well, let's keep going. <laughs> um, all right, so which companies are leading the way in developing better or fewer packaging solutions um, and paying for them? Amazon to their credit, are doing great work around this. And Amazon was at the table in a very positive way, um, recognizing this was a sustainability was a huge company goal, and they wanted to be constructive in the conversation in Olympia. So I would say they're a great example. And again, it's because they're the consumers who use Amazon. We want that. We want less packaging and less boxes and less foam and styrofoam and plastic and all of that. And they recognize not only is it good for the planet, but it's good for their bottom line. So I would say, and then we've had really great partnerships also with other companies. Yeah, another good local Washington State example is Philips. So the Sonicare toothbrushes used to come in a bunch of plastic and other types of packaging. They completely redesigned their packaging to be all recyclable and less of it. And they designed their toothbrush to have a removable battery. So you can actually replace a battery and keep using it. Like my husband was so frustrated a few years ago because you, you had to basically buy a new Sonicare toothbrush. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, great. So here's another question from the audience. Um, in the states with ERP or the, um, sorry, responsibility, EPR, okay. Producer responsibility programs. This is what, similar to what the RAP Act would have done. Have there been challenges or unintended consequences with implementation of these programs? Well, so I guess the first part I would say is they're all really new. So they actually haven't 
So it's California, Oregon, Maine, and Colorado. And they're all a little different. Maine was first. I'm looking at Heather because she has the knowledge on this. But they haven't really got off the ground yet. So we keep, that's, a, that's one reason that the industry says, hey, 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 slow down, stop what you're doing. We don't know how these other states are going, so let's keep delay, delay, delay. We shouldn't do anything here until we know. Well, that's not acceptable to me personally. But so what would you say, I mean, they're not really fully implemented yet. Not in the US, but in Canada, um, they've been rolling it out over the past 10 years. And um, British Columbia did the model that we are most similar to, where the manufacturers, which is the brands, and the producers pay for the entire system, 100% pay for it. Um, but other provinces did not. They had partial payment. They all are now changing to that full payment. So we, that's why our model is the full payment model. So we're looking at the one that in, in all those sort of experiments in, in Canada, the British Columbia model was the one to, to use. Okay, it looks like the audience wants to take some names here. What companies are the biggest lobbying forces against RAP Act? <laughs> well, I would say it's mostly the, the companies themselves hide behind the business associations that they belong to in Olympia, and probably the same things are happening in DC. Um, we had a lot of industries also who, I would say like the medical device industry and other, um, uh, medical industries were very concerned about, um, the food, food industry was very concerned about how their packaging would be impacted. Um, and everyone wanted an exemption, you know, and then once you exempt everybody, <laughs> there's no one left in the program. Um, so I would say that it's a lot of maybe the smaller companies joining together as a part of association saying, this is too scary and too hard and too much change and we aren't playing in Europe or Canada, so this is scary to us and we don't wanna do it here in the United States. I would say, you know, it's sort of who was the, the biggest opposition and it was um, pretty powerful, I believe, because the issue is so complicated for legislators and staff to fully digest. You know, it's easier to say no, right? than to say, okay, let's try something different. This sounds scary, but let's try it anyway. So, um, I mean, anything else? So the out? Waste Association was the number one opponent to the bill. And, um, but to address the issue of the small mom and pop shops in Washington, the threshold is actually $5 million of, of um, products sold in Washington, or um, 1 million tons of packaging. So a little mom and pop one-off shops, they would not be impacted by the law. I think to, to piggyback here, there's an interesting question from the audience about um, the effect of COVID on our use of single-use plastics. Uh, I feel like, you know, thinking back now, it's, it feels like a black hole of COVID. Uh, but there seemed to have been a lot of momentum behind um, uh, folks, you know, weaning themselves off of single-use plastics. And I could see how this person is asking about how whether or not there was a, a setback with COVID and how that might set us back. Are we able to overcome what, um, how we had may maybe had uh, backpedaled in that way? There was a monster setback. So what happened is right at the beginning of COVID, we were all afraid. We had no idea how it was being transmitted. And the plastics industry sent a letter to President Trump at that point, signed by all these plastic industries, um, saying that plastics is an essential product and we must have it and we need to have plastics because that was going to be the safest thing. So there was really a lot of PR that, you know, it could be trans, and, and we didn't know that it could, that the COVID could be transmitted by 
um, touching things when it turned out to actually be more of a respiratory thing. We were wiping our groceries down we and were, early and COVID and times. Right? Yeah. Um, so um, it, we were on a very strong trajectory at that point, right before COVID, of moving to reuse, where people could bring their own bottle, bring your own coffee mug to a coffee shop, that kind of thing. And that all got completely stalled, stopped, stopped at that point. And now, um, over the last three years, it's regained its momentum. But that was a big blow at that point. We have another good question. Um, companies tend to pass the cost to, to the consumer somehow. How do we ensure that that won't happen if we do pass some sort of legislation? Well, it's a great question. So some studies have been done around this that basically the bottom line is that EPR systems don't actually pass the cost on to their consumers through the product. And we know this because several studies have been done. So there was a study done in 2020 in Oregon called Basket of Goods. Am I saying that right? Basket of Goods. and. Um, they studied just like a basket of goods at the grocery store in Oregon and compared that to several provinces in um, Canada who have EPR systems, and there was no difference in price. So we know that the price differences we see has to do with inflation or um, you know um, supply chain issues, but that's another myth that um, the industry, quite honestly, is telling people in power, people who make laws, <laughs> that their consumers, their constituents might see free uh, recycling bills, but the price of a good carton of milk is going to be more expensive for their families. And that's simply not true and a myth that we need to bust and make sure is not being spread because they say it like it's fact and it's not true. <laughs> well, maybe that's kind of surprising for some people to hear because you think of you know, the, the lobbying efforts against the bill where they're afraid of, of cost increases and so forth. And if that does come to pass, you you may think naturally that some of that cost would be passed down to the consumer to offset the cost of the regulation, right? Well, I, well, I mean, just to respond really quickly is I think that what happens is they stop, they stop, they find better ways to package their stuff and stop producing so much of the packaging. That certainly helps their bottom line because if they're producing less of the packaging, they pay less into the system. And then in um, Europe and in Canada, these laws have been in place for a very long time. So all these major corporations, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, all these, most of the stuff that you're getting in your grocery store right now, they're international corporations. We, they've ha we've been paying for that, all of us, for decades if there's this big increase. So the reality is, is that this is already something that is built into their, their budget from a long, long time ago. And it can be very emotional too, right? You were telling me uh, backstage about, I think it was Darigold, where there was discussions over uh, post-consumer content being used for milk jugs, right? W what happened there? How did uh, someone, a CEO, perhaps from one of these companies, sort of come to terms with this, this uh, idea of, of using more recycled content? And, and how did they get to that point of like saying, yes, we can, we can uh, make these extra costs for, for doing this? So um, the bill that uh, Senator Dawson, it, who was formerly in the legislature, and um, Les, uh, 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 Representative Liz Berry worked on, which was SB 5022 a couple of years ago, was going to require required recycled content for beverage containers. The dairy industry, Dairy Gold, was very opposed to being included. And finally, Senator Dawson talked to their CEO and talked about the future, our kids, or his grandkids. And um, they came to an agreement to give a five-year delay for, dairy, for, the, for the dairy milk jugs. So in the bill, that's how it got passed into law. That summer in California, 
all of a sudden, a milk um, company announced that they were going to be using recycled content. So a lot of these innovations are already kind of in the works with these corporations, and we just need to pass the laws to help make it happen. You saw this with car manufacturers, where now the shift to electric vehicles is happening very fast. Well, we are, this blinking red dot here is telling me we are officially out of time and thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for being here to have this discussion with us. Appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you to Ben, Heather, Dr. Oda, and Representative Barry for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed your audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.